Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter wrote this first epistle to Christians in the western part of modern-day Turkey, the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He writes to them as chosen exiles scattered throughout their provinces. And after an extended thanksgiving in verses 3 through 12, he writes, beginning in verse 13 through chapter 2, verse 10, about the basic characteristics of Christian living, what it means to be a Christian And I have the past two Sundays emphasized what I believe to be the two themes, the two pillars that are crucial to understanding what it means to be a Christian. And with that understanding, it helps us to understand what Peter writes in the rest of the letter. The first is conversion, and the second is the power of the word. Last Sunday, I reviewed much of what I had said previously about conversion, and so I won't do that again. But I would, remember, I would remind you of one particular aspect, that is inclusion in a new community. If you look in chapter 2, uh, verses 9 and 10, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And what it means to be a Christian means to be a part of the chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people belonging to God. And as Peter reminds his readers, this wasn't always the case. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Today I want to revisit the second pillar, if you wish, of these two themes, and that is the power or the effectiveness of the word, specifically in light of reading, uh, as in reading the word. I talked about this some years back. I thought it would be good for us to revisit us. Studying the scriptures, reading the Bible, can be an act of worship. It should, in fact, be an act of worship. And if you think in terms of our passage last week in verses 4 and 5, very much the language of temple worship, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And as we saw in verse 4, the verb come means come to worship. And so we gather to worship, and reading the word of God should, in fact, be an act of worship. But if we would be honest, this is oftentimes not the case. Stop and think a minute. A part of what it means to be made in the image of God, it means to be a person, to be personal. And because God is personal and we are personal, it is natural that he desires to have a personal relationship with us. Um, Not in the sense of one's private own experience, though that may in fact be included, but in terms of a living relationship. And it is in the Word, in the Bible, in Scripture, that we have a revelation of God. God is revealing himself to us. And I think this is important for us to embrace as we read, as we study, as we believe the Scriptures. 
God, who is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, is a personal revealing God. He is revealing himself in the Word. But let's face it, we've had the Bible for centuries now. It's been read over and over and done so for a variety of reasons and for uses. Um, The Bible has acquired, it seems, a certain authority over time. Um, But we find that the people read it for various reasons and they find it attractive for different reasons. Um, Reasons other than God revealing himself and reasons other than having a relationship with God. As I said last Sunday, even in critical theory today, most people would argue that when you read a text, you're not listening to the author, you're listening to yourself. It is what you think the text says. And if that's how we approach scripture, then God is not revealing himself. We are simply getting out of it what we think we can. And so many people are intrigued by the intellectual challenges, the issues, the problems that the Bible poses. If you have a a curious mind and you like to use it in very demanding ways, you could could hardly do worse than to be a scholar of the Bible. There's a wealth of literature and scholarship, philosophy, history, language, culture, geography, poetry. Uh, You name it, the Bible seems to have it. And much has been written on the Bible, and if you doubt that, then go upstairs afterwards and look at the books there, which is just a small, tiny fraction of all that has been done. You can, in fact, spend a lifetime and never exhaust what is found in the Bible as an intellectual challenge. Many come to the Bible with a practical mindset. That is, they want to live well. They want their children to grow up to be decent, honest people and citizens. They want to have good communities and good neighbors. And the Bible has a reputation for telling people how to live a good life. And so they come to the Bible looking for instructions as to how is it that I am supposed to live my life. Other people read the Bible for inspiration. There are so many beautiful and comforting passages in the Bible when we are lonely or in grief. Or we simply feel that we're in a rut and we somehow need to be inspired to get out of that rut and and to do something that perhaps we're not doing. The stories or the Psalms can lift us up. For example, the story of David and Goliath can be seen as inspiration that you can defeat the giants in your life. You know, even though you are small, you can do great things. Um, There are devotionally cozy passages You can pick and choose those that are comforting, those that uplift you, those that inspire you throughout the Bible. There are, in fact, guides to tell you where the good stuff is, if you're looking for the good stuff in the Bible. If we would be honest, I think each of us may have spent different times in one or more of these categories. So I'm not meaning to mock or to come down on each approach. I would simply point out that if you use any of these approaches, intellectual, practical, or devotional, you are using the Bible for your own purposes. And those purposes require nothing of you relationally. You don't have to have a relationship with God to take those approaches. They are, by definition, impersonal readings of Scripture. And so... I think we need to face that it is, in fact, possible 
with all honesty and integrity to come to Scripture for the intellectual challenges it provides, for the moral guidance it offers, for the spiritual uplift that we find in it. And not in any way, in any way, deal with the personal revealing God who has designs on your life. Instead, it's all about what I want to get from Scripture. Without dealing with God, or any revelation, without setting ourselves under the authority of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who are alive and present and responsible for all we are and all that we do. See, not everyone who gets interested in the Bible and not everyone who gets excited about the Bible wants to get involved with God. I have found it very striking that some of, some of the most brilliant minds that have dealt with Scripture seem to know nothing of God himself. They are brilliant and they have done, they've given their lives to studying of Scripture, but they seem to want nothing to do with God. But God, in fact, is what Scripture is all about. It is a revelation of God. C.S. Lewis, in his last book, which was an academic work, Experiment and Criticism, said that there are two kinds of reading. And here he's just talking about reading in general, but in an academic circle. Um, The first is a reading in which we use a book for our purposes. The second is a reading in which we receive the author's purposes. The first, according to C.S. Lewis, guaranteed bad reading. That is, when we use a book for our own purposes. But when we receive the book, if you wish, when we receive the word that the author has written, if we exert our senses and imagination, what the writer has said, the pictures that the author has painted, become real and alive for us. In a sense, the author takes us to a different place. When we use it, then we use it for whatever purposes that we choose. And to C.S. Lewis, when you read to use, that is inferior to reading as receiving. Even though C.S. Lewis wasn't writing about the Bible in this particular book, it is certainly true of Scripture. We are to read in order to receive. We read the Bible in the way it comes to us, not in the way that we come to it. We are to submit to God as Father, as Son, and as Holy Spirit. We are to receive these words that are found there, now and for eternity, to the glory of God. But again, I think, as I mentioned uh, the past two Sundays, in the modern world we take very much a, a sort of an owner's manual approach to Scripture, which is very practical. I need to find something in the Bible that will help me, versus I want to hear God speaking to me. I want for God to reveal himself and for the the relationship between God and myself to grow. But we've become very practical. And instead of the trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit, we have created a new trinity in our own lives. Our wants, our needs, and our feelings. And the Bible simply becomes an instrument to help us in that regard. Um, Rather than worshiping and looking to Scripture to learn of the Holy Trinity, we in fact want to use the Scripture for our own Trinity of our own wants, needs, and feelings. In our culture, 
We are taught and we are given a lifetime of practice in the belief, with multiple confirmations, by the way, that we have a say. We have a strong say, if not the final say, in the formation of our lives, our clothes, our education, our cars, our food. If, in fact, you study history, the vast majority of people who have lived on this planet have had very little choice, very little say in these matters. They've been happy to have food to eat and clothes to wear and a place to sleep. But we, because of our prosperity, have great freedom and somehow, rather than submitting ourselves to God, we want the word of God, in a sense, to be an instrument to help us get these things that we want. And so we take a very utilitarian view of scripture. We come to read it to find out, okay, what will make me stronger? What will help me get through the day? What will help me in what I want? And as a result, uh, when Peter talks about conversion, which we make very personal individual, radically individual, and then when he speaks of the power of the word, which we see only as a manual, then we will miss what he's saying in the rest of the book. Because, in fact, we will not understand how Peter sees what it means to be a Christian. We need to think about this. Most would say that in our time, our needs are non-negotiable. This is what I need. I know what I need. And that our rights are non-negotiable. We have certain rights that are ours and no one can take them from us. We have, in fact, a need for fulfillment. We have the need to get our own way. And the Bible simply becomes an instrument for us to use to accomplish those goals. And so we find in our society that we have therapists, we have travel agents, we have gadgets, we have machines, we have recreations, we have entertainments to drive out the boredom, the loss, and the discontent. And sometimes I can't help but wonder if church and the word simply become two more things to add to the list to help us deal with these things. God as sovereign, God is in control, is lost. And let's face, I think, let's face, I think none of us is immune from this. Um, in fact, as I was going through this, I almost well, came to the conclusion that one of the most dangerous places, or the place where you're most likely to use the word of God rather than receive it, is right where I'm standing. That the word of God becomes something that I use, if I'm not careful, to get a point across, rather than for us as a congregation to hear the word of God, to hear God revealing himself. And when he says, be holy as I'm holy, we're like, oh, okay, we get that. God has revealed himself and now we are to follow in the steps of his son. God and his ways are not the ways that we generally think of. Most of what we think about God, if we're not careful, in fact, comes from the streets, from popular culture, from television and radio, from friends, or perhaps what we imagine in our own minds. And they're just simply wrong. Perhaps not completely wrong, but in fact they are wrong enough to mess us up in the way that we live. 
In the Bible, in Holy Scripture, we have revelation. A revealing of what we could never figure out on our own. And without this text, without the word, without it as the authority in our lives as individuals and in the life of this church, we would go off course. We would be ineffectual, even though I think we would have good intentions. And we would be driven by our needs, our wants, and our feelings. All of this to say that when Peter speaks about the power of the word and that the word of the Lord stands forever, he's not talking about a manual. He's not talking about something we use. He's talking about God's revelation of himself that we are to receive. And what it means to be a Christian is to be converted and to see the power of the word of God. Today we come to a new section that begins in verse number 11 of chapter 2. In this section, having told us what it means to be a Christian, Peter will now tell us how Christians are supposed to live in society. As we approach this section, there are certain problems that we must face and certain issues we should consider. It has been suggested, by the way, that there are markers in this book, and it's found in verse number 11. It starts out with the words, Dear friends, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. We will see this again in chapter 4, verse 12, where he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. The word or the phrase, Dear friends, seems to be a marker that Peter is beginning a new topic. I think that, in fact, is the case in our passage today. Peter has taken great pains to emphasize and make clear the communal nature of the church. But in fact, the church doesn't live apart from the world. The church exists and lives in the world. And we have a responsibility to recognize how we are supposed to live in that world, the world that God has put us in. We, we can't, we're not free to do whatever it is that we want. So in this section, Peter will talk about our relationships in society, within the state, between slaves and masters, and between husbands and wives. But studying this passage raises certain questions. The first is, if social relationships today are different than from, from what they were when Peter was writing, how are we as Christians supposed to learn anything from what Peter is writing? Consider that Peter here writes about slaves and masters, and for the most part we don't have slavery. He says nothing about what employees, free employees, how they're supposed to relate to their employers. Uh, by the way, we don't have slavery in this country, and I somewhat chuckled to myself. You know, during the NBA lockout, a number of the players were complaining that they were being treated like slaves, making millions of dollars, and apparently they're being treated like slaves. Well, that's not slavery, okay? When Peter writes about slavery, he's talking about people who belong to other people. And he, he writes how slaves as Christians are supposed to relate to their masters. Peter says nothing about how commercial enterprises and companies are to relate to the community in which they operate. He says nothing about this. 
So can we take anything from what Peter says about relationships and apply them to our situations? Can we learn anything about the spirit and power of Christian morality? For example, if you read this passage and what we'll look at next week, one might have a sense that a Christian is always to be passive, particularly politically. That we are not to be activistic at all, that we are simply to submit and never be involved in politics. But what about social and political change? Does Peter not encourage us to do this? I would argue that he he does, and we need to understand what he is saying. So these are some of the problems that we face as we come to this passage. There are some things that we need to keep in mind as we go on. First of all, and this, this is the one thing, if you remember, that I want you to remember. This passage is heavily theocentric. That is God-centered. God, or theos in Greek, appears 19 times in this passage. Christ appears seven times. In fact, it is in this passage that we have two great Christological passages Um, In chapter 2, verse 22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth when they hurled their insults at him. He did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. One might say, well, Damon, this is wonderful and all, uh, but why do we find all this stuff about God in the section that's telling us about social relationships? If Peter is telling us how we as Christians are supposed to live in society, social conduct, why all this business about God? I think Peter wants us as the readers to understand that all of life, All of life, including our social relationships, must be structured in relationship to what God wants. God is the one who tells us how we are to live. It is to be mapped out by God's, or from God's perspective, not our own. Because from our own perspective, we might make the wrong decision. We might think, I'm facing, I'm facing opposition here, so I should probably change direction. If I don't, in fact, I could suffer. Well, that's my perspective. What is God's perspective on this? And as Peter points out, our lives are are provisioned and are enabled by God. That's why God is throughout this section on social conduct, because it is only by God's grace that we can live as we should. And it is to God's glory that we are to live our lives as we do. And yet, for all of this, the context within which Peter writes the context within which Christians live their lives and the shape their lives are supposed to take is quite different than what we might expect. The context is paradoxical. We saw this at the beginning of the book. We see it here at the beginning of this section, that we are aliens and strangers in the world, to which Peter adds, among the pagans. Uh, Other translations, most translations have the word Gentiles, which I think I prefer because the majority of his readers were, in fact, Gentiles. But Peter brings up that not only are they aliens and strangers, in which they will suffer slander, they will suffer harshness, and they will simply suffer for being Christians, but they are also in Christ. So they are God's chosen exiles, if you wish. They are aliens and strangers 
They are in Christ. And this paradox, this is the context within which they are to live their lives. A word about the, how the shape their lives are supposed to take. Um, in verse number 20 of chapter 2, Peter uses the word endure two times. The King James uses take it patiently in both cases. And I think when we read this word endure, the mental picture we have is of someone sort of hanging on for dear life, you know, grin and bear it and sort of just grit it out and just, just make it all the way through. We think in terms of long-suffering, forbearance, and passivity. We won't come to it today, but for you to think about it, I would suggest to you that Peter is not encouraging passivity, but resistance. Active, not passive. Determined, but not violent. So we must ask ourselves, what shape should this resistance take? If I am a Christian and I'm not supposed to be passive, then what am I supposed to do? Well, the Lord willing, we will see this in the weeks to come. But we must get to our, our text, or at least begin our section today. Verses 11 and 12 of First Peter chapter 2. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. As he did at the beginning of his letter, Peter identifies his audience for their benefit, not for his. And we find at least four markers of identity here. First of all, they are beloved. He refers to them as dear friends. It's a familiar term we find in the New Testament epistles. Um, but I find it interesting that Peter doesn't begin his letter this way. We have to wait until chapter 2, verse 11, to see this phrase, dear friends. And I wonder why that is. But then if you think about it, in chapter 1, verse number 22, Peter says that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. And now Peter demonstrates his love for his readers by referring to them as dear friends. In the ancient world, one might argue even in the modern world, um, forms of address either speak of power, I'm in a higher position than you, or you're in a higher position than me, or they speak of solidarity. Now, Peter is an apostle, and one could easily say that this is an apostle, capital A, sort of writing down to his readers saying, this is what you need to do. But at the point when he begins to sort of outline how they are supposed to live, he doesn't speak as a person of power, but as one who is a brother. He is a friend. They are his dear friends. And there's a real sense of solidarity. He wants them to know that. And so he refers to them as dear friends. Secondly, he refers to them as alien and strangers. These two terms, words for the, they actually come from the same root words as what we find in chapter 1, verse 1 to God's elect strangers in the world, and then in verse number 17 of chapter 1, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Putting the two words together, they actually describe the same thing. They describe someone who is a non-citizen, someone who lives in a country and has lived there perhaps all his or her life, but in fact is not a citizen. Uh, it's a concept we're not unfamiliar with, but in the Roman Empire, 
the vast majority of people in the Roman Empire were not Roman citizens. They were under Roman authority, but they weren't citizens. And so this, this concept of being an alien and stranger, I think, was not unfamiliar to his readers. He wants them to know, as Paul wrote in his epistles, that they belong to another country. They have citizenship in heaven. So Peter is writing to those who live in a society, but they have different values. They have different ideals, different institutions. And so, in a sense, there is a distance. They are not citizens of the countries in which they live. By the way, this is not simply New Testament language. We find this in the Old Testament. Abraham, when Sarah died, wanted to buy land so that he could bury her. And he went to the Hittites, and this is what he said. I am an alien and stranger among you. It's the same language that Peter uses. He says, sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. I'm an alien and a stranger. They are dear friends. They are aliens and strangers. Thirdly, they are among the Gentiles. As I mentioned earlier, this might seem strange because, in fact, the majority of his readers are Gentiles. We are Gentiles. In verses 9 and 10, which I read earlier, Paul, or Peter uses language from the Old Testament that described Israel. The idea of being a holy priesthood, a chosen people, and all that. Here we see him using the word Gentiles as a Jew would. That is, the Jews would describe those who are not Jewish as Gentiles. Those who do not follow the law of God. Those who do not follow Torah. But Peter tweaks it a bit here. And by Gentile he means someone who does not follow Jesus. And someone upon whom judgment would fall if they do not repent. So there are aliens and strangers among Gentiles. The fourth thing that he says is that they are slandered as evildoers. And here we find Peter raising an issue that will be sort of an underlying theme in this whole section. The matter of being falsely accused as evildoers. What is it that Christians did that people would think that they were evildoers? If you look in chapter 4, verse 4, Peter writes, They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. I think the ESV is a bit clearer here. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Why don't you do the things you used to do? Why don't you hang out with us anymore? Why don't you do these things? And suddenly a Christian is separating himself or herself and saying, I don't do those things. Which from a Christian perspective, those things you are doing are evil. But from the perspective of the Gentiles, of the unbelievers, the Christian becomes the evildoer because he or she will not join in them. There are many examples of this. But the one that comes to mind is of our brothers and sisters in Mexico, uh, particularly towards southern Mexico, where drinking alcohol is very much a part of the culture. And when people become Christians, they separate themselves from that. They say, we're not going to do that anymore. And then they are seen as being against the culture. You're anti our culture. In our own situation, we would say someone is un-American. They're not patriotic if they say that their citizenship belongs elsewhere. As I mentioned sometime, I think it was a year ago, what is more important to us, our passport or our baptism? 
Well, if you say baptism, then that makes you seem little less patriotic than we're comfortable with. In a world that is concerned with public status, an effective way of marginalizing people you don't like is to slander them, is to smear them. And this is what Peter's readers are beginning to experience. So what do you say to people who are being slandered? Well, our two verses today, verses 11 and 12, abstain from sinful desires and live good lives. As we find so often in the epistles, I fear oftentimes, or not often enough in preaching, there is both the negative as well as the positive. Abstain. Stop doing these things. Don't do these sinful things. But it's not simply a matter of don't do these things. This, in fact, is what you should do. This is the positive. Peter does not want his readers to withdraw from society. He does not want them to isolate themselves from society. He wants them to be very much engaged in society. By the way, just parenthetically, for a lot of Christians, they didn't have a choice. If you're a slave, you can't say, well, I'm going to isolate myself from society. You couldn't do that. You belong to someone. Someone tells you what to do, and you do it or suffer the consequences. So first of all, abstain from sinful desires. This should sound somewhat familiar. I mean, in this, own, this very chapter, we've heard it. Look at the first verse of chapter 1. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. It's already been there. And then in chapter 1, verse 14, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. All of this is a part of the painting that Peter is creating, showing them to be aliens and strangers. They are strangers that are scattered throughout Gentile society. As I've mentioned before, when you are a stranger in a society, as a Christian, there are two temptations. The first is to simply do what everybody else does. We call it assimilation, or you might call it defection, to go over to the other side. Everybody else is doing it. I don't want to seem to be weird. And so, in a sense, to go over. The second is to question your status before God. I think that's one reason this is a very theocentric passage. I mean, this is not simply about what you're supposed to do, but you do this because you belong to God. Here in the negative command, Peter addresses the first temptation, and he says, abstain. Peter doesn't directly address the second temptation, but as I said, the emphasis on God roots us and grounds us to know that we belong to him. Peter brings up something else here. And the consequences of giving in to the evil desires, these war against your soul. Peter has dealt with the matter of the soul earlier in uh, verse number 9 of chapter 1. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Your soul has been saved, Peter tells us. But it is threatened. It is threatened by evil desires as your soul is in process. Remember, conversion is an event as well as a process. You have been saved. You are being saved. As you are going through this process, there are these things that attack you, that war against you. And if we're not careful, we can be diverted. We can be sort of driven off the road, so to speak, by these things. 
So don't do these things. Abstain from these desires. And then secondly, in its place, we are to live good lives. What could this mean? What does it mean to live a good life? In my opinion, that's what the rest of the book is about. Peter will tell us what it means to live a good life. There could be a problem, however. Is it not possible that what the Christian would call good, the pagan or the Gentile would call evil? Absolutely. This could certainly be the case. But in Peter's thinking, to define something as good is not simply to look at the act itself, but is in a sense to look beyond it. That's what verse number 12 is about. See, good deeds point beyond themselves. They tell us and they tell others who our allegiance belongs to and what our disposition is like. It is God who orders our dispositions and we do these things for God's glory. So to say, is this a good act? I don't know if I'm supposed to live a good life. Am I living a good life? Let's be careful that we don't simply focus on what we are doing. We, in fact, need to see that it goes and it points beyond itself. It points to the glory of God. If you look at verse number 12 again, live such good lives among the pagans or the Gentiles that they may accuse you, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. The big question is, when will this happen? Will this happen in my lifetime? Will in my lifetime people see my good works and glorify God? It may. It may. And it may not. But it definitely will happen on the last day, on the day of judgment. And here Peter uses an Old Testament expression indicating the day of visitation on the day he, that is God, visits us. The day of the Lord, as it's known in the prophets, the day of judgment. This is not a foreign concept. Listen to what I'm sure is a familiar passage from Philippians 2. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is looking ahead to a day when all would acknowledge, when all will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this will result in glory, glory of God the Father. But it won't all happen in this lifetime or in this world. It will happen at the end of time. I do think, and we've, we've talked about this before among us, we've experienced times when we have done the right thing and people have noticed that and have been appreciative that we've done the right thing. But we've also discussed that there have been times when we've done the right thing and people haven't appreciated it because it's really sort of, sort of thrown sand into the gears. It's messed up the machinery. It's slowed things down. We can't, people can't be as efficient when we're around. Peter tells his readers one day, one day, that even though people slander you now and say, that guy is a rat. He's, he's anti-Roman. He's unpatriotic. He doesn't hang out with us anymore. Even though a person may say evil things against you, one day, 
they will acknowledge that you did what was right. You lived a good life to the glory of God the Father. So this is who we are as we begin this section on how we are to live our lives. We are aliens and strangers, even in our own country, because our citizenship is elsewhere. That citizenship is made possible by God through his son Jesus Christ, resulting in our conversion through the power of the word. And there you have those two pillars again, conversion and the power of the word. As conversion is both an event and a process, we are to abstain from sinful desires and we are to live good lives. And what this means, as I said, will be fleshed out. The Lord willing, we'll see it in the weeks to come as Peter continues this letter. Let's pray together. Father, we are by nature social. We're made in your image. We're made for relationships. We don't like being put on the margins. We want to be a part of the group. And yet when we come to faith in you, it means that we take on the status of non-citizen, alien and stranger in our own countries, perhaps in our own families. But you have called us to be your people, a chosen people, a royal priesthood. It's only been possible because of your mercy, and may we never forget that. I thank you for what Peter writes, and I pray that in the weeks to come as we go through this, we would have understanding, and, and more than that, we would put these things into practice in our lives. We confess that far too often we come to Scripture, we don't want necessarily to learn of you, to hear from you. We simply need some information, or we want some inspiration. We want comfort. But in fact, you call us to be your sons and daughters. You are our Father. You desire to know us and for us to know you. I thank you for this time today that we could gather to worship you. May your spirit and grace go with us as we leave this place. Keep us through this coming week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please, and we'll sing the doxology together.